1: And this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to us. Listen up, parents. Today, we are going to work on cleaning up our parenting style. My first guest is Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Dr. Tina Payne Bryson is the co-author, as I mentioned, along with Dan Siegel of The Yes Brain, as well as two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline each of which has been translated into over 30 languages. She is a psychotherapist and the founder as well as executive director of the Center for Connection and Play Strong Institute in Pasadena, California, where she offers parenting consultation and provides therapy to children and adolescents. And she's also the mom to three boys. And she's with me, and I'm so happy about that. Tina, thanks for joining me on the show.
2: Lisa, thanks so much for having me. I always love to get to talk about the books and the ideas and what it's like to actually do the in the trench parenting work and how those ideas actually kind of what they look like and how we wrestle with them in our everyday lives.
1: Well, parenting is a huge job, as those of us who are parents out there know. And it doesn't come with an owner's manual you know, or an assembly manual. You just kind of, these kids come into our lives and boom, we have to jump in and try and figure it out. But thankfully, there are people like you on the planet that help us make sense of all of this.
2: <laughs> or help us at least learn how to be gentle on ourselves when we can't make sense of
1: it. <laughs> yeah, so true. Let's talk about much of how we discipline. You know, my kids are now older. They're in college. so. My disciplinary days are over, thanks be to God. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Well, you know, my boys, I have my oldest just started college this fall. So I I'm kind of feeling like as I'm talking about all of these ideas for the first time in the last couple of months, I'm thinking about all of this through the lens of what it's like to kind of launch a child and to say have I done this well enough that he can handle himself out in the world. So it's kind of been a really fun Mind shift for me. But so I've got an 18 year old, 15 year old, and 12 year old. And I love getting to talk about discipline because here's the thing. We have really lost our way in terms of how we think about discipline. And the truth is, when you understand a little bit about how the brain and the nervous system works, and you understand a little bit about how learning happens and the role that relationships play in all of that, Most of what we do in the name of discipline actually makes no sense. It's actually counterproductive. So, I love getting to talk about this. When Dan and I were writing No Drama Discipline, we had a colleague ask us to not put the word discipline in the title of our book, which is funny when you're writing a discipline book to say don't use the word discipline. And the reason for that is because when people think about discipline, they typically have the connotation of punishment. And what Dan and I decided to do was to kind of reclaim the original meaning of the word, which is to teach and to build skills. So let's think about this for a minute. If we want, if the goal of discipline is to have our children become self-disciplined people who handle themselves well and make good choices, even once they're away from us or when we're not around and looking, then what we need to do is to help them build the skills and have the capacity to do that. So every discipline moment, every discipline struggle, the things that drive us the most crazy, those are actually all opportunities for us to understand and see the areas our kids still need skill building and still need to be taught.
1: It's interesting you talk about discipline in punishment, because I can look back on the times that were challenging with my kids when they were in their adolescence and teens that really were sort of, you know, like hair bending moments. And I realized that the yelling and screaming did absolutely nothing, that it was more about the leading by example and hoping that it would catch on eventually. Talk a little bit about your experience, both as a mom and as a clinician.
2: Yeah. So the brain is either in a reactive state, which in our new book, we would call a no brain state where you're reactive and defensive and shut down and rigid. Or so the brain's either in that reactive state or it's in a receptive state, which we call a yes brain state. And a receptive state is open and ready to learn It can handle difficult situations and still kind of be in a place where it can make decisions. And so it's basically our best selves, these yes brains. So if the brain's either in a reactive state or it's in a receptive state, what's interesting is that the brain can only learn when it's in a receptive state. And in the yes brain, we call this the green zone. So when we're in the green zone, that's the only place, our that's the only state we can be in if we're going to learn. And so what happens is if the goal of discipline is to teach... But our child, a lot of the bad behavior is happening because our kid is in a reactive
1: state, right?
2: (laughs) So they're in a reactive state, which in our book, we could call a red zone where it's really kind of like acting out. This is more aggressive, slamming doors, disrespectful, yelling kind of state. Or we talk about the blue zone, which is more like shut down, almost kind of withdrawn, disengaged, kind of more collapse response. But both of those are reactive states. So the bad behavior often happens because our kid is in a red zone, a blue zone, reactive state. And then our, if our goal is to teach, then a lot, what, what I mean when I say a lot of what we do is counterproductive, we often respond because those reactive states are contagious. They push our buttons. Yes, And so they're in fight, flight, freeze, then they say something really disrespectful to us, or we feel like they're being really ungrateful. So it activates our reactive state. And so then we actually respond to them in ways that send them further away from the the receptive green zone. So if we're yelling and screaming, we're humiliating, we're throwing out punishments, we're just picking some random consequence we throw at them. If we spank or hit or we're physically aggressive with them, all of those things make it even less likely they can learn. So let me just tell you a quick story about a moment with uh, one of my boys. So that'll kind of exemplify the principles in the yes brain, but also kind of the ideal when it comes to, the purpose of discipline and and being effective now i have to give a little disclaimer here because in this story i'm going to sound like a saint parent. And in this situation, I did stay in the green zone myself and I stayed in control of myself and I was really intentional. But I don't do it like that all the time, Lisa. I have. I just want to be (laughs) real. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And in fact, in No Drama Discipline, Dan and I both tell a story in the appendix about a time we you know, flipped our lids as parents. And I'll just give a little teaser that I threatened to remove one of my children's body parts. So you know, I i am not like green zone mom all the time or doing yes brain parenting all the time. So, OK, so I had this moment, though, and I'm actually sitting in my room right now. And this is exactly where it happened. I was in my room and my son, Luke, who was about nine at the time, came running in and said, JP, five starred me. Now, I didn't know what that meant. But apparently, if you slap someone hard enough, it leaves a handprint that looks like the five points of a star. So I, I comforted Luke, I said, Oh, let me see. And and I, you know, I said, Do you want me to put a cool rag on it? So I comforted Luke and kind of got him calm. And then it was time to deal with the perpetrator, right? It's time to have the discipline moment, I've got to go address this behavior, it's not okay for him to hit his brother. So I take a breath first and make sure I am, you know, in the green zone, receptive, yes, brain person. And I come around the corner and JP is a raging red zone. His, mu- and you can see this. There are physiological changes. His muscles are tense. His eyes are wide. His face is, you know, red. Um, he's, I can like from across the room, I can almost feel his heart beating really fast. He's breathing fast. And so the typical parent response can range. Like some typical things my instincts might be to do is to demand he go apologize to his brother, go tell your brother, you're sorry, which JP's not sorry. He's in the red zone. He wished he had 10 starred Luke at this moment. Right. (laughs) And, uh, or to say, you know, go to your room. You clearly can't be with people. I'm taking away your play date for the day or to pretend like I'm asking a question, but I'm actually just yelling. Like, why did you do that to him? Why would you hit him? You know, that kind of thing. So those are my instincts in the moment, but none of those things teach lessons and they, make him probably more reactive. But I got to get this kid in the green zone if I'm going to teach him anything. So in the name of discipline, I actually do something very countercultural, but based on a lot of science. And what I do is I actually soothe him. I connect with him. And what my job is, is to calm down the reactivity in his whole nervous system and brain and body so that he can get to a receptive state so I can deal with teaching him, right? That's the whole point. So I reach my arms out as if he had been physically hurt. So he's in emotional pain, but I respond like I do when he's physically hurt. And I say, oh, JP, you're so mad. Come here. What happened? Mm. And I try and hold him. He doesn't really want to be held. He's kind of, you know, still too mad to kind of be still enough to even be held. And he starts telling me about what his brother did to him and how it was really unfair. And I tried to use my words and blah, blah, blah. So he but he said, so I five starred him. And I said, oh, that must have made you so mad. I can understand why you. that would make you so mad. That was really frustrating. Luke shouldn't have done that. Now, by the way, I'm making sure Luke isn't hearing any of this, right? Because otherwise, <laughs> then we have a big party of red zone. Everyone joins in. So basically what I'm doing is I'm soothing his nervous system down with empathy and connection and relationship. Empathy actually is a practical strategy that's effective. It's not just this nice, lovely thing our kids like but this works with adults too. empathy actually down regulates our nervous system reactivity. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh, it's so no wonder it was so frustrating. Oh, I can understand that. So as I do that, it takes about a minute or a minute and a half. And his body relaxes, he starts breathing regularly. And so my brain's like, Okay, now he's in the green zone. Now I can be a disciplinarian, which means a teacher, right? Yes. So then I say, sweetie, you really hurt Luke. And I allow him to feel not shame where like you're a horrible, defective human that will never be better, but healthy guilt where his, you know, where he can kind of go, oh, and I say, you really hurt Luke. And I pause and I let him kind of sit in that feeling for a minute. And his head kind of tips down. And that's a really powerful disciplinarian there, right there, just letting him feel that. And I say, I can see you feel bad. It's okay to be angry, but you can't hurt. What happened for you? How did you know you were mad? How can you make things right with Luke? And we walk through this reflective dialogue where we're kind of reflecting on his behavior. Now, Lisa, think about this for a second. Because had I yelled at him or sent him to his room and just thrown a consequence at him, like I'm taking away your playdate today, He would have gone to his room and he would have been spending a lot of mental energy thinking about how it's not fair. I love Luke more than him. This was Luke's fault in the first place. And basically, he would spend no time thinking about his role and actually being accountable for his behavior. But this other way where I my first job in the name of discipline was to get him to a receptive state so he could learn. And I did that through connection and empathy first by making sure I could stay in the green zone And then I could really help him think about and reflect on what his role was in it and how he was accountable for the choices he made. And then how can we do things differently next time and how can we make things right? So during that process, at the end of it, have I taught? Yes. Have I built skills? Yes. And... I've given him an experience of moving from a reactive state into a receptive state. And over time, what happens when we help our kids move from kind of unbalanced states back into balanced states is their brain learns how to do that better for themselves. So this isn't just surviving the moment. It's also building the circuitry of his brain to be more balanced and resilient and insightful and empathetic, which are really the four pillars of the yes brain.
1: This is incredible. Where were you when I was raising my kids? (laughs) You know, this is applicable to so many other relationships as well. I mean, if you don't have a young kid at home, you could apply it to your spouse. You could apply it to a coworker. I mean, this is useful, really, really useful. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, The book we're talking about today is The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. To learn more, please visit www.tinabryson.com. On Twitter, at Tina Bryson. And Facebook, that page is tina-pain-bryson-phd. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise.
0: We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about clearing
1: the chaos and getting to yes with our kids, how to clean up our parenting style. Let's rejoin the conversation with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. So we were talking about using discipline as a teachable moment and moving from this Red or blue zone brain state, you know, where you're highly activated or detached into a green zone. And Tina, you can jump in at any time. Um, and the, the, the green zone being sort of that receptive, calm place where you're able to actually take in the information that is being communicated. That's
2: right. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we do is to say, okay, if my child is like going out of the green zone all the time, when I think about the behaviors that most concern me, that most drive me crazy, I think, okay, behavior is communication. So when my eighth grader comes to me at 6 p.m. on a Sunday night and says, Mom, can you take me to Michael's craft store? I know he's not a crafter. Like he has a project <laughs> due the next morning, you know. And so in that moment, I'm really mad. And I'm saying cuss words in my head. And I'm, you know, I'm just really frustrated with, with him. And, you know, and I launched into the lecture of, you need to be more respectful of my time. You think I can just drop everything and whatever. But a couple days later, I went, oh, he told me something. He was like, Mom, I don't have the executive function skills down pat yet to plan ahead and think about the materials I need and when I need you know so that meant if I wanted to change his behavior I needed to change mine so I needed on Fridays to look at his stuff with him and do some practice all of with all of that so I think the things that send your kids out of the green zone or that, or the behaviors that drive you crazy or that upset you those are your kids saying I need skill building in this area so it's really helpful to think about behaviors communication about what they need to be taught and then it's our job to teach them
1: I love how you approach all of this through empathy that, you know, and, and, you know, you and I during the break, we were talking about sort of the sweet spot or the honeypot of empathy and what it buys us really.
2: Oh, it, you know, it's funny, I was, I know a minute ago, I said empathy is a practical strategy. But I was talking to a huge room full of educators a couple of weeks ago. And this teacher raised her hand. And she said, you know, I love what you're saying, but I just really want a practical strategy. And I said, empathy is <laughs> a practical, effective strategy. And it is, I think, you know, empathy And this is this applies to every human relationship. Like you said, even if you're not a parent, this works with people because it's based on how the brain and the nervous system works. And as mammals, we are wired that in our states of distress, we have a mammal instinct to go to someone who will help us feel connected and protected. And that's called attachment or secure attachment. So what empathy is practical in that we know that someone sees our needs and they're going to help us through them. And so that allows us actually to feel physiologically safer. And when we feel safe, the brain knows it can kind of calm down, the nervous system can calm down. So empathy is a super practical strategy in any relationship, it just works. But I think the other part of empathy is, you know, there's many facets to empathy, of course, feeling with someone or taking their perspective. But one of the things Dan and I wrote about in the Yes Brain empathy chapter is that there's this other piece of, as you know, you know, people were talking about how there is, is there such a thing as too much empathy and there can be empathy burnout and all of that. But we have to think about there are many forms of empathy. And one is this idea of compassionate joy, which is where we can feel joy in reducing the suffering of another. And we can build this with our kids out in the real world and kind of fine tune their empathy radar to think about how they can help other people. We want them to be change makers in the world and to, you know, be people who contribute in the world. So, like a, a typical moment would be like you're at a restaurant and you've got a waiter that maybe is kind of rude and short in his responses and you know, my instinct immediately is to be like why is he acting like that? What's his problem? You know, or whatever to kind of go to that place. But if we're being intentional about cultivating empathy in our kids, this is an opportunity. And we can say, gosh, you know, he seems like he's having a hard day. I wonder if something's going on with him. And I remember my my five-year-old at the time said, "Um, yeah, maybe his mom is sick or his dog just died, you know, or something like that. It was really sweet. And I'm like, yeah. So I think if we could all do that, if we could all cultivate that idea of thinking about the suffering of others. And, you know, we don't know what's going on in people's homes. People are, you know, sometimes dealing with really hard things that no one knows about. If we can just approach the world with that kind of compassionate empathy, it actually can bring us a lot of joy in reducing the suffering of other people.
1: I agree. When we talk about, you know, that compassionate joy and how that practice increases other areas of our lives, other skills, you know, like insight, balance, resilience, things like that.
2: Yeah. You know, empathy. So, Really, when you think about the middle prefrontal cortex, which is the frontmost part of our frontal lobes, it's the very last part of the brain to develop. This is the part of the brain that gives rise to our capacity for empathy, for insight, for emotional balance, for balancing our bodies, for attuning and having, you know, really connected communication, for making sound decisions, intuition and morality. All of those things are housed in this part of the brain as it's connected to other parts of the brain. And so... Every time we cultivate empathy or we cultivate insight or we help our child go from a reactive state to a more receptive state, all of these things are actually making the prefrontal cortex fire and wire. So we're actually not just influencing the minds or the characters of our kids, but actually how their brain is wired so that it becomes automatic and built to be who they are.
1: I just wanted to jump in and say the other interesting part about the prefrontal cortex that many people might not know is it doesn't complete its development until the mid-20s. So these kids don't actually, not these, our children, all of our collective children don't actually possess the capacity to fire on all cylinders that these teachable moments are what help build the skill. Exactly. And, you know,
2: like all of us, but especially as while this part of the brain is not fully developed, when emotions run high, we're that's when we're most likely to kind of flip our lid and lose access to that part of our brain. So we act more like reptiles, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's an interesting thing to do, too, is to think about kids' behavior. Is Sometimes it's a can't instead of a won't. Like, we assume they're choosing to be a certain way, but if they flip their lid and emotions have run high, they really don't have the prefrontal capacity. And, you know, Lisa, when I tell parents, like, okay, this part of the brain helps kids be empathetic and insightful and make sound decisions and regulate their body and regulate their emotions and do all these things, but They won't be able to do that perfectly or none of us can, but they won't be able to do that as, you know, in in the same way until they're in their mid 20s. And they're like, are you (laughs) kidding me? No, I know. But I know. But this is actually really good news. And here's the good news about that. This is the part of the brain that is actually one of the parts that is most able to be changed from experience. The deeper you go in the brain, you know, it's much more hardwired. And of course, our genetics play a huge role in who we turn out to be as well. But because we have this long window until the mid-20s, that means we have a huge longer window in order to change and build how that brain gets built. So, And particularly during adolescence, that's the second most dramatic period of change in the brain. And so it's not too late for our adolescence either. That's another huge window where that part of the brain is massively reorganizing. So we build those skills. By letting them practice doing those things. Right. So all of those things I just mentioned, the more we give practice, the more that part of the brain will fire and wire. But I will also say and this ties it back to the empathy and connection piece and why we want to discipline that way is because one of the things that we know from the attachment research is that. All of those things I just listed, except for intuition and morality, which haven't yet been studied, being able to be empathetic and insightful and making good decisions and regulating your body and brain and having attuned communication. And one I didn't mention is um, being able to overcome fear. So it's it's all where our social and emotional intelligence and our resilience and all of that happens. Those are all outcomes of having secure attachment. So if you have a parent who shows up for you when you're in distress and helps you feel safe and seen and soothed, that's the empathy piece. Uh, I guess seen and soothed are both empathy pieces. Then all of that leads to your brain kind of wiring up that prefrontal cortex in the most optimal way. So empathy is
1: building the brain also. You know, when you talk about attachment, and I know that you've got another book on the horizon that is going to be published in 2019 about attachments. You say one parent, And I think it's important to really talk about that because many of us have the idea that, oh, well, if we don't provide a stable two-parent household, and sometimes that's not possible. But if you have one person that shows up,
2: one person that's what the research says and you know about 40% of kids do not have secure attachment with their parent but that secure attachment figure might be a grandparent or a teacher or you know somebody else maybe it's a pastor or a priest or a coach or whatever but ideally you have it with more than one person and so especially you know if you're if you're a single parent home if you have another adult that's in the child's life that shows up for them that's awesome that That's all brain building stuff. But the research says just one person makes a huge difference in helping that part of the brain develop.
1: And it's that person being stable in the way that they show up, that you can always count on them to show up, that they are the one that is going to reinforce that it will be safety and stability no matter what, that somehow the outcome is going to be okay.
2: That's right. And that's what it's really about. I mean, if you think about if you're a chimpanzee in the jungle and you hear a scary noise or you get hurt... Going to your attachment figure is equivalent in the brain to actually staying alive. So what this is, is it's someone who helps us feel connected and protected, particularly in times of distress. And that's where, again, we bring back to the discipline is oftentimes the discipline stuff is happening because our child is in distress. They're overstressed. They're anxious. They're having a temper tantrum because they're super angry. So they're in distress. And that's when they so the way I like to say it is when your kid is at their worst, that is when they need you the most. And they need us to kind of be a safe haven, which requires for us to take good care of ourselves so that we have the capacity to do that, to show up for them. And I do wanna say one other thing about this, Lisa, is that we don't have to show up perfectly either. We don't yeah. have to be perfect. And the research is really clear that, you know, some some of the figures are saying that if a parent shows up and helps their kid feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure around 30% of the time, they can still have secure attachment with us. So this is really great news. We don't have to be perfect. And the key is that when we have ruptures or when we mess up, Or when we don't make our kids feel safe or seen or soothed or secure that we will love them forever, we just repair and we say, I really wish I had handled that differently. I'm really sorry. I lost my mind and I'm going to go think about that. And was that scary for you? And you, you know, you just, you show up for them then
1: after the fact. Well, and that willingness to be vulnerable and self-effacing and understand that as a parent, we, we do mess up. I mean, that's just part it's part of the job. And I think together in that dance with our kids is where that skill building and relationship building talent is acquired. Right. That's how we we learn. Yeah. And then they also
2: learn to widen their window of tolerance. That's a Dan Siegel phrase, the window of tolerance to widen their window of tolerance for having conflict in a relationship. And then walking through the hard part of getting things back on track. And so it it prepares them to be in relationships with siblings, with friends, with significant others. And it also models for them how to make repairs when we when we show up and say, wow, I didn't do that well. And we apologize in a way that feels good to them. They learn how to do that, too.
1: Yeah, they do. Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, I hope you're going to come back, hopefully with Dan Absolutely. Siegel, and we'll talk about the new book, The Attachment Book, in 2019. To learn more about the work of Dr. Tina Payne Bryson and The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child, please visit uh, com on Twitter at Tina Bryson, and on Facebook, that page is Tina Payne Bryson PhD, and there is a hyphen between each of those words. Tina, you are a delight. I'm so happy we got to hang out. Me too, Lisa. That was really fun. Here comes the break. We'll be right back.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day regardless of external circumstance sure things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control there is only ever one thing that is totally within our control ourselves when we have command of ourselves we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise whether you see the glasses half empty or half full The glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now,
1: I urge you to download and share this podcast episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about clearing the chaos and getting to yes with our kids, how to clean up our parenting style. My next guest is Julie Morgenstern. And she is an organization and productivity consultant. She's a New York Times bestselling author and speaker. For over 25 years, Julie has been teaching people all around the world and at all stages of life how to overcome disorganization to achieve their goals. Her mission is to free each individual to make their unique contribution to the world by helping them design their own systems for managing time and space that feel natural and easy to maintain. This inside out approach to organizing everything gives everyone the energy and knowledge they need to get and stay organized. We're talking about her newest book, Time to Parent Organizing Your Life to Bring Out the Best in Your Child and You. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, Julie.
3: Oh, it's great to be here, Lisa.
1: Well, thanks for joining us. I want to talk about parenting and children and the yes. challenge of this time management thing. I just got my second and youngest child off to college. So I ostensibly have an empty nest, which frees up a lot of time to do some very cool projects and to catch up on a lot of things. But I remember back in the day how hectic, chaotic, exhausting and frustrating it could be trying to do it all.
3: Yes, the parenting years are inarguably the most time-stretched years of a human's life. There is no other period of time where you're pulled in so many directions and feel so driven to do a wonderful job. You want to be there for your kids, but you don't want to lose yourself in the process. You get torn between spending time with your significant other, if you have one, or getting back on the computer and doing your work or Any downtime, do I spend it with friends or extended family? We're pulled in so many directions. And I raised a daughter, I was a single parent for most of her life and have been coaching parents and families around the world for almost 30 years. And there's never been an instruction manual on how do you divide your time? So I decided to use my emptiness time (laughs) and the perspective. You can't get that perspective. I couldn't until I was really out of the day to day churn and able to really reflect plus on the client work. And I also did some heavy, heavy, heavy lifting research on the science.
1: And, you know, this ties into the U-Curve study, which I don't know if you're familiar with about happiness and aging. And most people report that they're least happy period of life is when they are raising children. And it's not for lack of love and joy in their children, but it is the demands and stressors that impede upon, you know, self-reporting happiness.
3: Yes. And you know what I found, one of the most interesting insights that just came to me as I was working on the book and I was reflecting and I thought, you know, no one ever talks about the fact that the very years we are raising our children, they're the peak of your own adult development years. While you're raising your kids, you are simultaneously building a career and you're at kind of the peak of your earning capacity and you're developing a new love, adult love relationship with a significant other or a social circle of friends and you're discovering who you are as a human. You don't know who you are, you you know, when you're 18 or 21. So Julie, rumor has it that you were once
1: a notoriously disorganized person. Talk a little bit more about that and what drew you into this as a business.
3: Yes, I was notoriously disorganized growing up. I like lived out of piles and I spent half my day looking for things and lost, you know, everything you can possibly imagine, keys, wallets, watches, umbrellas, my passport on the way to the airport, you know, and I was always kind of living in chaos. And, but I pulled things off, you know, like, no matter how chaotic things were, I always sort of came through, I got really good grades, I always ended up delivering, but the stress was very high. I was okay with it, though, until my daughter was born. And when my daughter was born, I just realized pretty quickly that if I did not get my act together, this child was never going to see the light of day. It took me like (laughs) two hours to pack to take her for a walk because I couldn't find anything and I was never ready. And it was so chaotic. And I thought, this is not fair to do to another human. I can do it to myself, but not somebody else. And that was really my motivation for getting organized And then a few years later, when she was three, I got divorced and I thought I I couldn't afford theater hours or theater money anymore, which was my career at the time. I thought I'm going to, I'm going to help organize people because I get what it's like to be completely disorganized, crave order and have no clue how to get yourself there. So I thought I could start a business and, you know, walk people across that bridge and do it with empathy because I don't think Though the skills are pretty straightforward, the stress and the overwhelm keep you from thinking clearly, and it's hard to get there on your own. So It's much easier when someone can walk you through it. Um, I want to ask you a
1: question about the job description of being a parent. In your view, is there even such a thing like under the heading of good parent and then describe? <laughs> tasks involved, yeah. <laughs> heavy lifting.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, be a superhuman. No, there never has been a job description. When my daughter was born, I was like, why are there not time management brochures being handed to me as I'm walking out of the hospital or in the pediatrician waiting room or in the office of her schools?" There was no instruction manual on how to divide your time. And then clients were always asking for like, how do I do this? And, and, and I just kept hearing, I thought, I'm gonna write the manual and I wrote it. I actually did come up with the job description for being a parent. It took eight years of research, but I got there.
1: Give us a couple of features of this job description, ones that we might not even think of.
3: I think first of all, the job of parenting, when you don't have a job description, it's kind of a recipe for overwork, inefficiency and insecurity. Any job feels infinite if it's not defined. You never know when your day is done because you don't even know what your job is. You don't know where the edges are. So here is uh, to me what parents truly have to juggle their time between. First, break the job into two parts, raising a human and being a human. Because remember, you're in the peak of your own adult development years while you're raising your kids and you have to fuel yourself in order to be able to be there for your kids and you want to role model happy, healthy adulthood. Yeah. So raising a human being a human. And then each of those have four components. And I can talk you what the four are. Essentially, those eight things constitute the entire job from like the birth of your first to the launch of your last. So talk through what these, you know, eight components are, but it's that simple. Give us a taste. Okay. So let's start with raising a human. There's four kinds of time we have to balance our attention between in order to raise happy, healthy kids. We have to first provide for our kids, right? We have to usually involves working and managing money to be able to pay for the things you need for your kid's life. Provide. The next kind of thing we have to spend time on is arranging the logistics of your children's lives. That is where are they are going to school and how are they getting there and who's picking them up and what are they doing after school? And what are they having for lunch and dinner and breakfast and on the weekend, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really big job, the logistics. It takes a lot of time. The third kind of time we have to spend to raise our kids and make them happy and healthy and secure is we have to relate to our kids. We have to connect to them and get to know them as the unique individuals they are. And the fourth kind of time is teaching, right? We have to teach our kids values and life skills and the things that will help them succeed out in the world. Provide, arrange, relate, teach. That's it. And that happens to spell an acronym, which is doing your part, P-A-R-T, for another human. Love
1: it. We're going to take that break and when we come back we'll carry on the conversation with Julie Morgenstern. We're talking about clearing the chaos to yes with our kids. Here comes the break.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? 8 Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable and inspiring items at Shop Happy at HarvestingHappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking
1: about the time to parent, organizing your life to bring out the best in you and your child. Not only is that a thing that most of us are concerned about, it is the title of Julie Morgenstern's newest book. And I also want to give a pitch to Julie Morgenstern, who's my guest here. And that is um, her first book was Organizing from the Inside Out, and it was a New York Times best Seller. So Julie, prior to the break, you laid out the coordinates of doing our part, you know, to raise our children. What about the other four coordinates about self-care?
3: Self-care. So we can't expect to, you know, do our part for others if we are running on fumes and our own life is kind of in a shambles. So there are four things we need to juggle our time between for our own self-care to make sure that we have the energy, perspective, joy, and patience to raise another. So there's four things. We have to sleep, right? Get enough rest and become a sleep ninja because parenting is a great challenge to good sleep. Yes. But you have to really learn how to sleep and compensate for lack of sleep and be a master at getting the rest you need despite all the interruptions. That's sleep. The next is exercise, right? We need to move our bodies and stay fit and healthy. It's good for the mind, the body, the spirit, and the confidence. It really grounds us and gives us the energy and health to take care of our kids. We need to spend time on our own love relationships, our own adult relationships, whether it's a marriage and or our social circle, extended family, which also nurtures us, right? When well cultivated. And the fourth kind of time is on fun. And I know that like most of my clients are like, fun, are you kidding me? I don't get to do that till my kids go off to college. No, (laughs) you have to find short burst ways to weave fun into the fabric of your day and your week. Because fun is the thing that makes you feel most like you. And it really brings that joy and bounce and energy into life. And if you're able to do that for yourself, it's a lot easier to bring that out in others. And that also spells an acronym, right? S E L F as in fueling your self. Beautiful. Makes it easy to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Doing your part,
1: taking care of yourself, but going back to this fun thing, not only is fun good for us and in a positive contagion for those around us, it actually acts like a drug right? It releases all these feel-good hormones in the brain. So it has an afterlife, right? It has a sustainability long after that fun is done, you know?
3: Exactly, exactly. And when you have those endorphins going through and that feel-good, you have the patience, you have the resilience to deal with... Raising kids is hard, you know? It's challenging, it's exhausting, all these things. And that really actually can help you do it with much more Grace and energy and resilience. So yes. And you know, the interesting thing about fun, I get a lot of pushback on that, like initially, right? From clients. But you know what people do for fun because they have this desperate need for it is they do this like escaping into their technology. Like they take a little break and they go on Instagram or they go on Facebook or they, it's like they steal fun through their cell phones, through their computers, but it's not really satisfying right? And science says, you just have to break the train of everyday thought. You can't be working on a screen all day and then doing your escape on that self-same screen. You have to step away, do something, take a walk around the block, listen to the birds, look at the trees, something completely different than what you do every day. So don't think your fun will satisfy you if you're trying to have fun on a screen. Get away from the screen.
1: I think this is a great suggestion. I want to talk a little bit about guilt, shame, humiliation Mm. that we as parents can feel when we feel like we don't have a grip on what's going on. And, you know, like that we're organized, we're able to sort of execute all the functions. We don't get bungled up with our schedules. I think back in the day to myself, and it happened. I mean, we're human. It happens to all of us. But then we feel badly. How do you counsel um, clients to move beyond that and into their humanness?
3: Yeah, I think when we struggle with organization, we jump so quickly to two things. One, self-labeling, which is like, oh, we are such a disorganized person or, oh, we are such a chaotic person and judgment. You know, it's like, oh, I'm such a loser. I'm such a mess. Everyone else has it together. I can tell you, (laughs) as a professional organizer who has worked with people at every single level of society, from like leading CEOs, the most visible people in the world who are doing all this, that everyone looks at like, wow, how are they doing all that, to people who are homeschooling moms and everything in between, like men, women, every age. The world around us, first of all, people used to be organized are now struggle with it because the world has become way more chaotic and way more 24 seven, so much more demanding. And everybody feels the pressure. And two, when you're struggling with organization, it's not really a reflection on you. It's a systems issue. It's just a systems issue. And anything that you're struggling with is a signal that there is a system that is not there. And if you can just objectify it, then you can build the system. The other thing is, particularly for family life, organizing for yourself is hard enough, right? For anybody to design a system to make their own life kind of run smoothly and their time and their space and everything has a place, blah, blah, blah. Once you are trying to organize for a family Multi-user systems are exceedingly complex and difficult to do. And the whole arranging and the logistics of a household is grossly underestimated in terms of its complexity, how many varying skills it takes to run a household, time management and space management. And, and you have to be organized but flexible because you have all these different people who are operating within it. So take the judgment out. It's a real objective challenge, even for an organizer to do a multi-user system. This is like a high skill. Just go learn the skill, and tackle it one hot spot at a time. I think people also have this all-or-nothing thinking. Like, if I have to get organized, it has to be my whole house and every minute of the day, <laughs> and there can't ever be chaos. That's that is completely not real. Yeah. Organize, you need to get organized enough. And you have to develop a tolerance for chaos because there's entropy. I mean, it's just going to go to hell in a handbasket in a second. But then your system, you should be able to put everything back in its place quickly and then hit reset for the next day. So it's not about organizing your life so it's perfect. It's about having enough systems in place that every time things fall off track, you can You have a system. You can put it back together. That's all organizing is. No more, no less.
1: I love how you put it so simply. But your spin is also that it comes from the inside out. So we work on this internal organization of ourselves, including that self-care, which is usually the first thing to fall off track, right? If you're going to take from your day, most of us will say, oh yeah, you know what? I, I won't go to that class or I won't, you know, walk or something. Cause that's where we feel we can steal the time and that's not yeah. the place to, to steal from.
3: No. And of all the research that I did, I, I spent eight years digging into this, the science of human development because though I am a time management and organizing expert, I'm not a parenting expert. And if I'm going to tell people how much time kids need, I better know. <laughs> yeah. So my big burning question of all that research was how much time and attention do children need to feel loved and secure, because if ter- if we know the answer to that, like everything else becomes easier. We know, oh wow, I did my job. There, yeah. that's enough. I cannot take a little time for me. And it was really hard, Lisa, to get the answer to that question. Experts didn't want to give me a straight answer. Everybody was, well, it depends. But ambiguity doesn't help. Yeah. So I dug and I dug, and here's what I found. And you may, you, you know, you may have read this. You may have been exposed to this. What children need are short bursts of truly undivided attention. You're not half on your phone or half cooking dinner. You're like on their level, in their eyes. Short bursts of like five to 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes at a time, but delivered consistently. Not big blocks of time delivered occasionally or erratically. So... Short births, Kids have short attention spans. Experts say calculate about a minute for every age of life. A yeah. one-year-old has about a <laughs> isn't that right? Yeah, it's sounding about right. Right. I mean, a five-year-old is like, well, listen for five minutes, and they're like, okay, what are we doing next? It's just the way the brain works. So, when you realize that, you actually every parent can build those short bursts into the time they are already spending with their kids. And and, and the key is to do it at sort of each transition point of the day. Each time you reconnect with your kid, spend the first five to seven minutes being fully focused on them. Hey, how did you say? First thing you wake them up in the morning, it's not, hurry up, get dressed. We're late. Where's your shoes? What happened to your backpack? (laughs) Which is really the way it usually goes, right? (laughs) We got to go. Let's go. Let's go. It's the first five minutes when they wake up. How did you sleep? What did you dream about? Are you feeling ready to wake up? Are you excited about your day? Wake up, send them off to school when you get home from work or they get home from school if you happen to be there. Dinner time and bedtime. And those sort of five anchors of the day, if the first five to seven minutes are spent fully focused on your kid at that reconnection point, That's the foundation, the consistent, reliable connectedness that kids thrive on. And then once you have that, then together but a part-time is also healthy, where they're doing their homework and you're cooking dinner, or you have the occasional big chunk of time we're going for a hike, or we're going to go to the museum. That stuff can make memories, that is nice, but it's the everyday moments and that regular cadence that children thrive on for feeling loved and secure. That means that's available to every parent. Yeah. And it gives you time for self-care too. And
1: it's available to every parent, regardless if you're raising a child on your own, even if you've got two jobs that you're holding to maintain the family, we can always find these quality, small bursts of time. And, you know, I didn't know the number, but I did make the discovery on my own because I too was a single parent raising my kids. And mm-hmm. I realized that it was those little touch points, you know, that were really connected and for them to know that I was available. And I'm sure you experienced the same thing, you know, like that that when mm-hmm. they came home or when they were at that ball game or whatever they were playing, that they saw that you were there, that you showed up, that yeah. you were present, that makes them feel secured. It's it's the underpinning for being a, a healthy human being, right? We We all yeah. need it.
3: Yeah. It makes you feel worthy, right? It makes you feel valued when someone gives you that time and attention, but you don't need to do these big, long blocks. And I remember as a single parent, had I known that, I mean, I felt so bad and guilty working, thinking that that was, you know, terrible. And so from the time I got home until my daughter went to bed, I felt like I had to be on all quality time the whole evening, which left no time for me, no time for anything else. And it was, you know, I tried and I rallied, but it was pretty draining and it, it didn't allow for the same balance, yeah. right? That if, if I had understood that, there's no need to feel guilty for working. Ellen Galinsky wrote a series of amazing books and studies. There's no study that's ever said that working parents are detrimental to kids. It's not whether we work, it's how we feel about our work that has an impact on kids. So if you're miserable and you talk about it, or you say, gee, you love your work, but you feel guilty. So you say to your children, like, I hate that I have to work, but I have to work because I have to pay for things for you. That's detrimental to kids. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh my God, my mom or dad hates work. They're only doing it for me. And they feel that burden. So try to be joyful about your work. Don't feel guilty. Yeah. and share that with your kids
1: well and it instills good values in them about creating their own lives of meaning and purpose and setting that example you know for doing that's so. right we are we're out of time so come come back and hang out with me talk more about this i think this is such an, an interesting subject and how it tracks through our life as well you know moving into the next yeah. phase of empty nest. And, you know, maybe some of us will go on to other careers. We'll go back to school to get another degree. I mean, one of my emptiness projects is I'm getting my yoga certification in my fifties and I'm, I'm doing it for myself because I can, which is cool.
3: Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'd love to come back and talk. And yes, time management, you know, all of this, by the way, is for parents. Again, your kids could be one or eight or 11 or 15 or 17 and it's still very relevant because the challenges of time they're constant you know they change shape as your kids get older but you're always torn between this and, and getting that balance and self-care built in without guilt is one of the greatest gifts you can give to your kids for yeah. modeling and yourself for maintenance
1: I and agree sustenance. and time waits for no one I've, I've learned that <laughs> it's, not, it's not waiting for us <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. Um, to learn more about Julie Morgenstern and her newest book, Time to Parent, Organizing Your Life to Bring Out the Best in Your Child and You, please visit her website, www.juliemorgenstern.com, on Twitter at Julie Morgenstern, and on Facebook, Julie Morgenstern Enterprises. Thank you again for being with me today. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson and Julie Morgenstern wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TokiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.